Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 29th, 2012, and my guest is Joshua Rao, professor of finance at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Josh, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much, Russ. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we get started, I want to mention that uh, I'm recording this in the suburbs of Maryland on October 29th, which is the day that Sandy, the storm, is supposed to arrive. So unusually uh, out of character for these podcasts, my family is all home. School is canceled. You hear any noises in the background, small children fighting, large children fighting, uh, et cetera, just ignore them. It's um, it's just my family. Our topic – It's a – a little foggy on the West Coast this morning, but otherwise not so bad. Yeah, well, there's a little bit of tit for tat. You know, the West Coast has lots of catastrophic environmental effects every once in a while, and nature Indeed. rears its head. Uh, so this is our turn to get um, worked up and sell out on batteries, flashlights, milk, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, our topic for today is that the work you've done on the fiscal challenges at the state level of public pensions, that is – Pensions that have been uh, promised to uh, current and future state employees. Uh, Why is there a problem? What's the nature of it? What's what's there to worry about? Well, it's interesting because uh, most citizens in the U.S. who have been following economics or or politics are very aware that the federal government in Washington is facing severe financial imbalances, which means that the, the tax revenues that the federal government is taking in are substantially less than the amounts that they're paying for for government programs and and services, and furthermore, it's been widely widely publicized that the promises that the federal government has made about Social Security and Medicare uh, far exceed the the projected revenues that will be fund used to to, to fund those programs. Um, we also regularly hear news from Europe about the debt crises being experienced there in Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain possibly Italy. Uh, But what many outside economic policy circles don't realize is that state and local governments around the U.S. are also facing very severe financial imbalances. And I say outside economic policy circles because this is a point that most academic policy experts seem to agree on. Uh, The University of Chicago has run an online experts forum for a while where they survey economics professors who are public policy experts. And this is a panel that is quite diverse with respect to university, geography, and political tendencies. Uh, As of the end of last month, they were actually asked whether they agreed with the statement that during the next two decades, some U.S. states, unless they substantially increase taxes, cut spending, or change public sector pensions, will require a combination of severe austerity budgets, a federal bailout, and or default. And 92% of the IGM experts either agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. 5% were uncertain. Hmm. 3% had no opinion. Great. And I, you know, I think to, to get your question of, you know, you, you asked about pensions, which is, which is what I work on. 
a lot of people will look at that result, uh, that polling result, and say, you know, how could this be? I mean, I I, I thought that under under the uh, balanced budget requirements of most states, that state and local governments have to run quasi balanced budgets. In fact, yeah. So how could they default? How could they, right? Well, in fact, you know, every state except Vermont must balance its budget according to to some definition. Uh, with the earliest of these provisions going all the way back to the 19th century, uh, when uh, the federal government had established sort of a precedent for bailing states out of their war debts after the, the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. But after the financial panic of 1837, they declined to step in and absorb state debts. A bunch of state, states defaulted at that point, eight states, including Pennsylvania and Maryland, um, also the, the territory of Florida, not yet a state, uh, defaulted on their on their debts, and and subsequently many states implemented balanced budget requirements. So so that gets the puzzle. You know, how, how can how can we how can we have reached the point that according to ninety two percent of academic economic policy experts, U.S. states are going to require uh, austerity budgets, federal bailouts, or or default uh, if they've set these rules in the past that limit the extent to which they can borrow money. You know, how, how can it be that uh, many of them seem to be facing the likelihood of what what essentially sounds like a, a sovereign debt crisis, um, not unlike what, what European nations have been experiencing? And the, the answer to how this is going to happen is really what my, my research is about, which is that it, 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 must, it must lie in promises for future spending that have not been and still are not recognized in today's budgetary processes. So in other words, these balanced budget requirements, they, they may require states to uh, spend as much in you know, kind of current spending as they take in in tax revenues and other revenues, but they don't prohibit states from making promises in the future to, to, uh, to make payments in the future to people um, that, they, that they can't keep. And in the instance of the states, those promises, the, the largest of those promises are actually promises that that the state will take care of the retirements of state and local public employees. Yeah, so the technical term for this is unfunded liabilities, which is just a fancy phrase to mean you've got promises down the road and you haven't set the money aside yet in the current period to to fund those promises. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, balanced budget requirements tend to focus a lot on what's going on in sort of the near-term budgetary planning uh, but if a state is promising that they're going to uh, pay for the, the pension benefits of public sector employees when those employees retire, then it becomes critical to ask whether the state or local governments are, are doing sufficient planning to be able to, to, to pay those benefits. And, and, and the reason it's, it's critical in, in terms of understanding whether the state really truly is running a balanced budget is that you know, imagine for a second that we kind of told all police and teachers and firemen that we were going to pay them annual pensions when they when they retire um, from the time that they retire at age 50, 55, 60, 65. You know, that, that varies based on the state until the time that they die. And we, you know, we, we do that. Um, but imagine that we didn't set aside any money at all for that, that we just did no planning for that. Well, that would clearly not be in the spirit of running a balanced budget, and, and that would clearly also not be in the spirit of what economists like to call intergenerational fairness, because 
the next generation of taxpayers, our kids, or maybe us in 10, 15 years when, when the, the employees of today are retiring, uh, that next generation will have to pay both for the services from public safety officials and teachers and other, other public servants that they are consuming at that future time and for the pensions of the retired public servants who served us in our time. So um, for that reason, you know, the, the sense in which we're, we're running a balanced budget, it's, it's very critical to understand uh, to what extent we're running a balanced budget. And, the, and, and that, that's going to require understanding whether we are planning sufficiently well for the promises that we are making to take care of the retirements of public sector employees. But of course, that's you could just say, well, OK, so we haven't planned enough, but you know, we've got when we hire people, we in certain professions, at least a pension is the competitive outcome of the hiring process. We'll discuss in a minute what kind of pension, of course, and how big it is. And as you said, when retirement starts, those are all dimensions that are going to be important. But it could just be, well, you know, it turns out we haven't fully planned for the future. So taxes will be have to be a little bit higher than they otherwise would have to be in it. So the real question, I think, that, that it comes down to it is, is the magnitude. And you've done quite a bit of work to try to figure out what that magnitude is. And I'm curious both what your estimates of that magnitude is, how big the problem is, and also how you go about actually trying to figure out what that magnitude is, because that methodology, is, it can't be totally straightforward. Not at all. The methodology is not is not totally straightforward. And in, 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 in fact, one of the one of the biggest issues with this is that the the costs that state and local governments are ascribing to the pension promises that they are making to state and local workers today are very, very different, much lower than what economists and financial professionals would view as being the true financial costs. Of, of a pension promise. And the problem with that is that, that that leads state and local governments to be able to say, hey, we, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're really running a balanced budget here because we're costing, we're costing these, these, these pension promises out at, at, at some number. Uh, but, you know, in fact, the, the costs that they're being ascribed by the governments today are a lot lower than the true costs. And what we've, what we've seen up until now is that there already is now a large gap between the promises that the governments have made to public sector employees under their own accounting and measurement relative to the, the assets that have been set aside, relative to the planning that has been done. And even the, the, the own measurements of the, of the governments themselves are, are vastly under-measuring the, the order of magnitude of, uh, of, of the problem, of, of the promises that have been made relative to the assets that have been set aside and the ability of the, uh, of the state to, to pay. So in, in terms of some numbers, you know, what, what, what we did was we, we added up the, uh, the, the, the liabilities uh, from, and we as uh, myself and my, my co-author, Robert Novi Marks, who is a uh, professor of finance at the Simon School of Business at the University of Rochester. We started out by adding up all of the uh, disclosed uh, unfunded liabilities, so it's total pro- pension promises and uh, unfunded pension promises across all the systems in the, in the U.S. That, that, that we could get, get data on. And we found that there were uh, around one, one to one and a quarter trillion dollars in unfunded pension liabilities 
in these systems. And that's a number that's very similar. It's also what, what you see is you know, having been reported by uh, the Pew Foundation, which has studied this issue, uh, and others who just, you know, if you go and you just look up your government's report, you know, your, your, uh, if, if you add up for California, CalPERS and CalSTRS, these are the pension systems that, that, that pay for public sector uh, employee pensions. Um, you know, if you add, kind of add, a- aggregate up all the systems in the, in, the, in the country, you get to about one to one and a quarter trillion dollars uh, of unfunded, unfunded pension liabilities, which, which sounds like a lot. Uh, but it really is um, a lot less than what the what the true unfunded liability is, and I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. Just just to make sure that you know listeners can think in trillions. I mean, we we uh, I like to think about uh, one trillion dollars uh, as around nine thousand dollars per U.S. household. So that's kind of what it what it what it works out to. Uh, others like to think about trillions of dollars in terms of. You know how far a stack of a trillion one dollar bills would reach if you could get to the moon with a stack of a trillion one dollar bills. But I don't think that's as useful. Uh, that kind of depends on physics and stacking and folding and things like that. We're useful to think about a trillion dollars as being about about nine thousand dollars per U.S. household. Um, so to, to to get to the the the, the measurement point and sort of the the, the point of our research, um, we investigated what kinds of assumptions the systems were making in terms of arriving at that number. And what we discovered was that the governmental accounting standards uh, were basically um, telling the systems to project out the, the money that they were going to owe, uh, that we were going to owe, the taxpayers are going to owe to, um, uh, to public sector retirees, and then to discount that back or turn that into one number today based on uh, an assumption that uh, the assets will earn a certain amount of money. So the assets that we're setting aside will earn a certain amount of money. And the way that that had been implemented was that they're basically assuming that every dollar that goes into the pension systems was going to earn uh, roughly 8% compound annualized returns going forward um, you know, with certainty. And the idea here behind these governmental accounting standards board standards is you can say, look, you know, our portfolio historically achieved an 8% return. So therefore, we're going to budget. We're going to budget going forward, assuming that the money that we put in the fund is also going to earn an 8% return going forward. And, you know, uh, if it achieves the 8% return, then great. Um, if, it, uh, if it surpasses the 8% return, then we'll be able to uh, reduce some contributions in the future. And if it falls short of the 8% return, then uh, taxpayers will have to will have to make up the difference. But Josh, before you go on, it, clarify where that money currently being invested comes from. So the, there's good news so far. You, you've pointed out that the government actually does put some money. State governments do actually put some money aside for for pension funds. That that money is earning some return, and you're saying that the expected return and the accounting that's done on how healthy the system is, is is assumed that it earns 8%, which is, of course, really high. But putting that aside for the moment, tell us where that money actually comes from. So the fact that they've actually put some money aside is is somewhat encouraging. So where, where, where does it come oh, absolutely. from? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's far better that they're putting some money aside than, than, than the <laughs> yeah. scenario I sketched out originally where you just make promises and don't, yeah. don't set any money aside. Um, you know, the, the money comes from both the uh, public sector employers, so that means, you know, the state and local governments themselves, and the employees. And you know, it's difficult to get a really good breakdown of what percentage of the contributions come from 
each of those because it, it, it's, it's actually very complex. You know, the, the, the way it ends up working is that there's, the, there's a sort of cost that's ascribed to the ongoing accrual of new benefits. That's called the normal cost or the service cost. And then there's also a cost that is related to the making up of unfunded liabilities, which uh, the, these accounting standards suggest that governments are supposed to try to do, meaning that if you get to a point where you haven't been making the 8% returns, and indeed we haven't been making the 8% returns uh, in the last decade, then you have to start putting additional money into the, into the fund. Um, you also have the problem that even though a, a contribution could be nominally an employee contribution, you know, it, it, it came out you know, in Wisconsin, for example, during the discussion about the, um, uh, about the, the union measures, uh, that the, the state was actually picking up the employees' uh, contributions. So, uh, you know, the, the true incidence is difficult to say whether it falls mostly on taxpayers or more on employees. Certainly employees have taken lower salaries uh, in order, you know, in exchange for these, for these, for these pension promises. Sure. Um, but contributions are coming from a mix of, of the resources of, uh, you know, general government revenues and also from resources that would be used to pay public employees. And of course, this also happens <clears throat> in the private sector as well, right? Up in a, in a certain way. So let, let's talk about that distinction. Uh, you and I both work at, at Stanford. Stanford chips in. I don't have to make all of my retirement contributions on my own. Stanford pays some of it, my employer. That seems like a normal thing. What's wrong with what's going on at the state employee level? Okay. Okay. Well, we have to draw a big distinction here because uh, at, you know, at Stanford and uh, for, you know, most private sector employees, you know, we're in systems that are, that are called defined contribution plans, like, like 401k types of plans. Okay. Like the, the 401k where, the employer contributes some money. The employee contributes some money uh, into an individual account. The account, you know, is managed by the employee. Uh, the account, you know, may grow in value, and then the employee, the you know, him, him or herself, is basically responsible for turning that balance into something that's going to uh, that's going to that's going to pay pay for their for their retirement. They're responsible for spending it down or buying an annuity or something like that. The state and local governments are defined benefit pension systems. These are systems where the, the, the government is promising, we will pay you a benefit. We will pay you a benefit that is a function of the number of years you've worked for the state and what your salary, your late career salary is at the, uh, at the, at the, at the government, state or local government that you're, that you're working for. And that promise uh, is, a, is, a, is a, a pledge to pay the benefit no matter what the stock market does. So the issue is that if we're not budgeting enough today for these things, for these pension promises, and we're not setting aside enough money for the pension promises, then the employees are going to reach retirement and they're going to say, well, we, we don't care how much money you set aside in the fund or how much you told us to set aside. You made us this promise and uh, we took lower salaries for that promise. And as a result, uh, the, the, there's going to have to be great tax increases or spending cuts or something uh, some finding of resources to be able to uh, to pay for the difference between uh, the the cost of the actual pension promise and the the much smaller amount that was set aside. So your point, which we just took a little road a little road trip to a little di uh, diversion to clarify, your point is that the the amounts that are set aside that are being set aside are only a fraction uh, of the necessary amount, partly because. Uh, the presumption that the money that is set aside is going to grow at eight percent. So, 
it, if you think that's unrealistic, the question then is, uh, what's a more realistic number? I think it's worth understanding where this eight uh, percent discount rate number came from, and and what what on what basis state and local governments justify. And I, I will say that a, a lot of the difference between what we are measuring as the true unfunded liability of state and local governments and what they are measuring as their unfunded liabilities um, comes down to this discount rate, this eight percent number. Um, so historically, you know the last. 30 or 40 years, pension funds have been investing in uh, a portfolio of, of stocks and bonds that has returned around 8% per year. That's kind of the historical realized value. And um, the, the they're therefore using as their budgetary plan an 8% number. They're sort of assuming that, okay, going forward, we're going we're gonna to earn this 8% number. And you know, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, I don't know. That I mean, seems fair. Yeah. Although, although – <laughs> We're often warned past returns are no guarantee of future success. Yes. It seems like the right place to start. Right, right. Past returns are no guarantee of future success. And, I, I, and you know, I think the thing that we're going to see, and I'm going to illustrate this for you uh, with some examples in a second, is that because the public sector pension promise is a guarantee, you, that is exactly the reason why you cannot use the returns on risky assets to try to measure what the what the what the value of that guarantee actually is. So I'm going to give you an example. Okay. So I want you to, to uh, think through, I'm going to try to put, give you too many numbers, but this, this is an example that um, I, I, I think will, um, will, will kind of help, help clarify things. Um, so, um, you know, suppose that you have a, a debt of $100,000 due in 15 years. Okay. I'm going to sort of set up a, a sim- simplified um, financial, uh, financial household for you. Okay. So that's, so that's kind of that's your um, that's your that's your debt. Now, um, suppose you also have some cash in a bank account, okay? Uh, and that cash is approximately thirty one thousand dollars. So you have you have a debt of a hundred thousand that's due in fifteen years. Uh, you have thirty one thousand five hundred dollars in cash, and you go to a bank and you want to apply for another loan, okay? So this is your this is your your household's financial situation. Now, the bank is going to assess your financial position. And if you have a uh, steady, high-paying job, the bank might say, fine, you're approved for the loan. If you don't have a job, if you're unemployed, uh, haven't had a job in a long time, uh, the bank would probably look at you and say, no, you're probably not a, a, a great candidate for this loan. So imagine that you were in the position of someone who had applied for this additional loan and had not received the loan. Now, um, uh, what if you did the following? Okay, suppose you, you went home, you thought about it, you were feeling a little dejected that you had been you had been rejected for this loan. Uh, so you decided that you were going to move the thirty one thousand five hundred dollars from cash into a portfolio of stocks and bonds, and that is a portfolio of stocks and bonds that historically you've observed has earned an eight percent return. And in fact, you have an idea, which is that you're going to go back to the bank the following day. And you're going to say, all right, I'm the guy, remember me from yesterday, I, I applied for this loan here. And uh, now something has changed. Okay, so, so yesterday I had the $31,500 in cash. Now I've got it in stocks and bonds. And if you take $31,500 and you multiply it by uh, a, gross it up by 8% per year compounded for 15 years, you will see that my $31,500 that I have in this, in this account today is going to be sufficient to cover 
the hundred thousand dollar debt that I have in fifteen years. So I'm just gonna. I'm debt free. I'm really. I'm, a, I'm perfect. I'm. Re- I've, I'm a great risk because I don't I'm, have any I'm, net I'm debt. Debt free because this thirty one thousand five hundred dollars is perfectly going to offset the hundred thousand that's due in fifteen years. And of course, the bank would not accept that logic. And um, you know, the, no one in the private sector would would accept that that logic. Um, and if you really tried to do something like that, and you you know signed your name to it, you, you would probably be uh, you know be be, be be taken to jail. So I'm, I'm, I would definitely not advocate that any listeners attempt uh, such you know to, to to make such a statement. But the governmental accounting for pensions says yes, you can do that. You can assume when you budget that. In you know the the money that every every dollar that you've got on hand is going to earn eight percent returns with certainty. Now I want to talk a little bit about what's really wrong with that. I mean, there, there's so much wrong with that example that it's you know it's it's, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, the, I think the first thing is that uh, you know a lot of people are recalibrating their investment expectations. Yes, they days. are. <laughs> uh, the eight percent returns that were achieved historically, these were achieved historically at a time when. You could get pretty decent returns on risk, you know, essentially risk-free assets. You could get, you know, the, in, in Treasury inflation-protected securities, you know, were giving you, uh, you know, as as of the late '90s, they were giving you three percent returns above inflation. So, you know, if inflation were running at three percent, you could get a six percent return in just about the safest security around. So, you know, achieving an eight percent return with a little bit of risk in some other part of the portfolio. You know, it didn't seem that unlikely. Today, you've got, you know, the, I mean, risk-free assets earn basically zero real. So, Z, you know, uh, in, in, you know, inflation, inflation plus zero or even negative. Um, you, know, you have to, if you want to, if you want to even get a return of inflate of just, you know, guaranteed return of inflation, uh, you, you know, you, if, if you bought a, a treasury inflation protected security, these are bonds that the, the U.S. Treasury issues that are tied to inflation, uh, you know, your your return is going to be, it will keep up with spending power if you buy a 20-year or 25-year uh, government security, but not a shorter uh, maturity security. So so the the, just the the kinds of returns that are, that seem to be available in the market today are a lot, are a lot lower. So, so one of the, one of the problems with my example that I gave you, one of, one of the things that I'm sure listeners would say is, well, look, you know, you, you may have earned, we may have earned 8% historically, but there's kind of a new normal going on in, in, in financial markets that suggests that it's just going to be a lot harder to earn those same returns um, going going forward. So that's that's one problem. Um, you know, another problem is that is that 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 uh, you know what, what I just said. I mean, it doesn't quite get to the point of why the bank actually won't give you any credit at all for moving your assets from cash into stocks. You know, they wouldn't just say, "Well, you know, we won't we won't allow you to, to calculate eight percent, but you know, we will allow you to calculate to assume you know a four or five percent uh, return on this stuff." And um, I think that's interesting because, you know, if you ask me if I think stocks will outperform government bonds uh, over the long run, I would say it's you know, maybe more likely than not. But the, the point is that there is substantial risk there. And you know, as the warning goes, as, as we were saying, past returns are no guarantee of future performance. We've told the public employees that we will pay for these pensions no matter what the stock market does. And proper financial accounting reflects that as a guarantee. It does not allow us to uh, to say to, to make a contract with our kids that says, "Look, you guys will pay for the pensions if the stock market does badly. We will have budgeted sufficiently if the stock market does well." You know, the, the returns on stocks that we got historically were were not a free lunch. Stocks are risky. Very, very bad outcomes are possible. And 
And furthermore, very bad outcomes are going to come exactly at those times when uh, the future generations, us in the future or our kids, are not going to be in a very good position to come up with more money in the way of tax revenues uh, or, or, or be able to handle government spending cuts um, in order to pay for the retirements of public sector employees. So it's really a problem. Of, we've set this up, this up so that you know, exactly at those times when the private sector would be most unable to pay for their own retirement, they're going to have to come up with money for public for the retirements of, of public sector employees that that you know should have been uh, properly you know where, where those systems should have been properly set up um, uh, in the past. These taxpayers in the future are going to have to make up the difference at the worst possible times. Yeah, another way to say it is that the risk falls on the taxpayer rather than on the the employees, which is nice for them. Normally, nice. and that's okay yeah. if you pay that pay for that in the form of lower wages. There's a lot of things we do in life. Where we trade security, we're happy to accept security in return for a lower return, but they're getting a promise, a generous promise where the riskiness of that promise uh, is paid for by someone else. And that's a recipe for – that's a bad set of incentives. Yeah, I mean, come on this way. I mean, I mean basically you know, the, 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 we have written a large insurance policy on the stock market, and we have got to come up with a lot of money, additional money for public sector employees if the stock market does not perform. There are ways to provide guaranteed pensions to people. It's they're called deferred annuities. Yeah. And if you look at what other countries do, okay, when other other countries, you know, let, let's look at so the Netherlands is my favorite because they um, have a very long tradition of providing occupational defined benefit pensions, these kinds of pensions that we have here in the public sector um, uh, for 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 just about everybody uh, in the Netherlands with a job. They're eligible for one of these occupational defined benefit pensions. And what, what do they do? Well, they, they measure the, um, the promises using risk-free interbank swap rates, which are essentially 0% for near-term liabilities. So that, they're using a 0% discount rate. And for the longest-term payments, for a payment that's 30, 40, 50 years out, they allow rates of no more than around, than around 4%. Um, and you, know, you, you look at uh, uh, you know, many other, I, mean, I can compare this to what goes on? I think it would be instructive to compare it to what goes on actually in the U.S. corporate sector when companies sponsor uh, pension systems. But you know, it, it's clear when I when I when I go and uh, speak to international audiences about the way that we measure pensions in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I think they think we're that, that that our governments are behaving very irresponsibly. But the worst part of this uh, now that that's that's all that's all very interesting and and great to know. The the worst part is that. You said even by the state's own assumptions of eight percent, it's a one to one and a quarter trillion unfunded liability, right? right. So the right. actual liability, if you used a more reasonable projection of expected return, it is dramatically larger. Unfortunately, right. the actual the actual unfunded liability is four point four trillion as of the end of of twenty eleven. Um, and so, that would be that would be about thirty six thousand per American household. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, thirty eight thousand dollars per 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 U.S. household. Um, and you know, so that that's that's a huge burden. Now, you know, some interesting notes about about that that I would add. You know, if you live in a major um, uh, metropolitan area, so um, some examples that come to mind are Chicago or Los Angeles. Um, your unfunded liability is actually a lot bigger than that because um, you know. Cities uh, have larger Even. public sectors. They're providing uh, more in the way of uh, more in the way of services, and th th this th this un this hidden debt, this debt in this disguise or off balance sheet debt that we that we owe to to public sector employees, 
uh, you know, is higher for places where there's a larger public sector. And so, uh, you know, in, in Chicago, you're looking at about $80,000 per household of, of, of unfunded debt. So basically of credit card debt that the city and state have run up on your behalf. It's a bargain, okay. but that's a bargain for the high quality schools that they have, Josh. Uh, well, sorry you know, about that. Uh, let's I, put that to the side. But it's eighty thousand dollars per household in Chicago for the expected, the current value of expected future promises. Yeah, and then after the using the assets that have already been set aside, so the the unfunded promises. And uh, you know, I think I, I just want to. I mean, just to come back to there, I, there's no what, what I've worked on is not really said very much at all about about the overall generosity of pensions or whether public sector employees are paid too much or too little. The real issue is that we we have been pretending that we are compensating them less than we actually are, and that's been, we've been doing this stuff with deferred compensation. We're paying in promises, and when when you have paying in promises and those promises aren't measured properly. Um, you really have a kicking the can down the road kind of dynamic where no politician wants to wants to touch this. I mean, any, you know, anytime uh, somebody brings up the idea of, well, maybe we should lower the discount rate because it's unrealistic, the response is, well, wait, wait a second, we can't afford to lower the discount because that would mean that we'd have to put more money into the pension fund today. And what that doesn't recognize is that the cost of making a deferred guaranteed promise is it's invariant to what you decide you want to set aside today to fund yeah. that. that. That cost is something that financial markets tell us very clearly what it what it costs. You know, you can look at markets for, for deferred annuities. If the if the state went to an insurance company and said, you know, we'd like you guys to pay these pension benefits, can you give us a price? The insurance company would surely not say, yeah, well, we'll give you a price, and we're, since we've seen you've earned eight percent historically on your investments, we'll, you know, we'll give you a price based on eight percent return. No, the insurance company is going to say, well, you want us to pay this in all states of the world. You want us to provide deferred annuities for your employees. Deferred annuities have a have a price in today's market, and and you know those are going to be based on discount rates that are pretty close to zero these days. So, so if there, there's this there, literature on. Um, whether private or public sector employees of the same skill level are paid competitive salaries, right? Uh, I don't know if you've looked at that, but I, it makes me wonder whether they include pensions in assessing the comparability of private and public sector pay. Yeah, I think there has been some work that has been done uh, in you know in I've seen various papers that have that have attempted to re-measure the public sector uh, you know cost of the public sector pension promises. Using the lower, you know, the the the, the financially based uh, discount rates, and it's just, it is very hard to get to get true comparables. I mean, in you know, in in uh, in economics, it's just very very difficult to to be able to say these two people are um, uh, are 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 truly you know truly comparable. Um, you know, another point about this unfunded debt, you know, the 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 eighty thousand dollars per household for the for the Chicagoans and the. The total of four 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 point four trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities around the U.S. Uh, you know, compared to federal debt of sixteen trillion dollars and potentially much more in Medicare and Social Security. Uh, it's nothing. At first glance, <laughs> right, it may seem small. I mean, this is just another you know quarter uh, of federal debt. It's but a wart. It's a wart. Is all it is. Wart. But let me tell you why I think it's not a wart. Okay, and, and 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 that's that's for the following. You know, the the federal government controls the money supply. They can print money. State and local governments cannot. And, and that's why I think actually a comparison to Europe, again, is, is quite useful. Um, you know, let's look at, look at Greece. Greece is not a systemically important country. It's a, a small state, 2% of GDP. 
within a broader Europe. But its financial overextension led to the realization, well, well, well two realizations, really. First of all, that there were, there were others that actually weren't in such great shape either. And secondly, that the legal frameworks do not, did not and do not exist for restructuring this debt. That there's no way to work this out. We have no real legal way to work this out because we've been assuming all along that the, the money was just going just gonna to be there. Um, and you know, like California and Illinois, Greece does not have its own currency. So I think you know when you when you look at it in that light, you know the 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 magnitudes of uh, you know the the unfunded uh, liabilities, uh, say you know the, the German government may be a lot bigger than uh, than than you know those 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 of Greece. You know the the, the problem is that the uh, even you know smaller states when they don't control their money supply, they have no control of their money supply, and they um, uh, they you know make, make these overextended promises. Uh, can really lead to crises of confidence when financial market participants just don't, they don't see an, an exit for this. They they see no no way uh, of the you know no legal pathway for restructuring the debt, and that that kind of uncertainty uh, can really do a number in financial markets. But it's I think it's worse than that actually. Uh, it seems to me it, it's uh, it, the real risk is the breakdown of civilization, which we saw a little bit of in Greece, not so bad because eventually. A mechanism was discovered partly because they are a small country relative to the rest of the countries involved. I mean, if you think about California, you think about California coming to a point in the semi-near future where it cannot honor the promises it's made to its public employees without either very large increases in taxes on current taxpayers, pleading in Washington that all other Americans chip in. We're telling those retirees that the promises we made aren't going to be kept. Now, normally in politics, you'd think all three things would happen. You kind of get a mix. You get a compromise. But that's because there's often governance measures that let that compromise take place. And I think what you're really pointing out is that those measures don't exist. We don't have a – what we've done in the past, you mentioned 1837. The government said, uh-uh, we can't. As a federal politician, a national politician – I can't make other taxpayers outside of California pay for California's irresponsibility. So then you go inside California. These aren't – this isn't a small group of 100 or 1,000 people. These are thousands of people who are expecting large sums of money, and they're going to fall very unpleasantly on a, another group of people. That's not – I don't know how that's going to turn out. That's, that's not <laughs> – Hundreds of thousands of people also in these hundreds of thousands of people – uh, happen to provide services that we rely on every day for our public safety and for the education of our kids. Could, could there be a worse arrangement than to borrow, you know, the huge amounts of money that we that we can't pay back to people whom we depend upon crucially every day for government services? You know that that just you know just creates a very very because you, you know you you can imagine what you know what's going to happen if we tell public sector employees we can't make these guaranteed promises. They Strikes. Say, well, yeah, strikes exactly. You know, and so and so. I think you know the uh, the breakdown of civilization over these kinds of things, over you know breakdown of of, the, of a functioning government uh, that can provide these services that we rely on, um, is uh, you know unfortunately going to become increasingly uh, increasingly likely. Yeah, but I think this, again, I think the strike is the least. Um, that that'd be a great outcome. Then then you negotiate some settlement, but that's a settlement you'd usually negotiate with current. Uh, employees over future benefits. We're talking about trying to renegotiate past promises to current retirees. Right. It, it's um, it's going to get nasty. But let before we go a little further, and we're going to talk about, and it's pretty depressing so far on this 
very rainy day on the East Coast and, and high winds are promised and um, it's not a, not, a, not a good day to be outside. Before, before we get uh, – we're, we're actually going to talk about, I hope, what might we do to make this better down the road or at least deal with it. Before we do that, I, I, you said you, you, we haven't said anything about whether these pensions are too big or too small. The only thing you've talked about so far is that they've not been planned for. But there is this other political un, unpleasant problem, which is the size of the pensions and the way they're calculated have been negotiated in the past in a way that a lot of people would say is really not so attractive or fair. So do you, can you talk about that or do you want to talk about it? Well, I can talk about it a little bit. I mean, I, I think what, I, what I'm asking is, is that I've read these cases. I don't know how representative they are, where a, uh, a chief of, of a fire department or police will retire at a young age, having taken lots of overtime in the year or two before they retire because the pension's based on the last year, which seems like a nice thing, except they pile in lots of stuff and they end up making a pension well over a hundred, sometimes one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That dwarfs anything available to somebody in the private sector because of the way the rules have been have been made. Is that is that a weird outlier that just makes the news, or is that all too common? Do we know anything about that? Okay, well, you know, I, I think we we know that it is um, not okay. So what what is uncommon are I think you know the, the situation in Bell, California, where you had uh, public sector employees making you know, seven or $800,000 per year without people really understanding and setting their pensions accordingly. I think that is not that common. What oh, is, oh, a few. Yes. What is, <laughs> what is, what is quite common? I mean, I, you know, so, so, um, here in California, uh, there was a, a scandal over, uh, uh, Contra Costa County where a fire chief, uh, was earning a $186,000 salary before he retired. And he was somehow able to turn this into a $241,000 pension uh, per year that was going to grow at three, you know, these pensions grow, by the way. I mean, they're, they're cost of living adjustments. So $241,000 was his starting pension per year, uh, and you know, which he, took, which he took when he was 50 or 52. And, Only 30 uh, or 40 years, more years of it. <laughs> yeah, right. And he was able to he was able to get this by uh, having the the city re repurchase unused sick pay credits right. that, he, that he had left there, and that that reset his pen, his his uh, pensionable salary to to this uh, two hundred forty one thousand uh, dollar number. And then, um, if, and then, if I remember correctly, he then went back and worked part time. Yes, at a very large salary while he was collecting the pension. So, right. So that's another issue is that public sector employees can often go back and work part time. You know, if they can, if people can go back and work part time, it's not clear what the justification is for, uh, you know, pr providing them with a, with a, with a, with a, with a benefit that looks like this. The actual spiking piece of this, you know, so spiking is whatever he did to get his $186,000 salary up to a $241,000 pension. Um, you know, spiking, I think, is something that's a sort of abuse that, that a lot of states uh, have tried to take aim at in, 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 in legislative action, what's somewhat either depressing or amusing is that even spiking, it's been very difficult for them to uh, say that current employees, uh, uh, you know, will be unable to spike their pensions because the the, the uh, there's a lot of both political muscle and and also some legal analysis behind the argument that look, these guys are protected. You can't you, you know you can't tell them not to not to spike their pensions. So you, even sometimes you'll read about a reform, a much you know widely touted. Reform that says it targets it targets abuses and spiking, and says, well, you know, new new hires will not be able to engage in pension spiking. I mean, that, we're talking about 
you know, whether somebody 30 years down the line is going to be able to turn their $186,000 salary into a $241,000 pension, that's, that's not going to be much, much help for the, the 30 years between, between now and then when, when people can. Um, but, you know, I, I've seen spike, I've seen evidence that's, uh, you know, papers that suggest that spiking might cost California some number in the hundreds of millions of, uh, of dollars per year. Uh, which is you know which is which is not insignificant relative to uh, uh, you know what, relative to, to to billion tens of billions of, of retirement costs, um, but prob- but is not is not really the uh, the root of the problem. I mean, if we had been if if all of these things had been transparent from the outset and it had been possible for uh, taxpayers or for uh, uh, taxpayer watch watchdog groups or uh, for uh, representing you know, legislators who had an incentive. Uh, to, to, to care about 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 um, fiscal soundness to actually monitor what was going on, we would have said we would have said in real time, "Whoa, wait a second! Th- these these things are really expensive. We need to make sure that we're we're offering people something that we that we can pay for and that we're we're budgeting properly." But all of this is hidden behind the shroud of uh, you know, mostly again of these of these of these return assumptions and these discount rates. Uh, you know, the only justification for using a discount rate that is higher than a default free rate like what's used in the Netherlands is if you want to you want to credit the government for its option to to default on these on these benefits. Yeah. And companies have recognized this for for quite a while. Um, you know the uh, Financial Accounting Standards Board, the FASB accounting, has companies using uh, high grade corporate yield curves to measure their pension liabilities, which makes a lot of sense for companies because those pension promises are really like corporate bonds. You know, as companies uh, approach, you know, if they, if they end up in bankruptcy, uh, like, you know, United Airlines, for example, uh, they become absolved of their pension obligations. And those obligations are taken over by the, the U S government where they are haircutted and then, and then remeasured using, uh, using, using treasury curves. So, um, I, I got away a little bit from this, from the spiking question, but I, I guess it just highlights the fact that I, I, I think that, you know, while, while spiking adds to the costs, I mean, the true problem is just that all of this is, uh, these are hidden ways for state and local governments to circumvent their balanced budget requirements and to be able to spend more money today uh, than uh, you know than they're, than, than they're than they're taking in in, in tax revenue and, and to be able to, to call that a balanced budget because of the uh, uh, the assumptions that they're that they're making in their planning. I wonder how aware public employees are of the of this problem. I mean, a, a, a lot of young people that I talk to expect to get nothing from Social Security in their current uh, contributions, so-called Which contributions. Would be a, bad, a bad expectation, right? I mean, that would be that would be on Social Security. That would be an, in, an incorrect expectation. I think so, but who knows? Uh, yes. But they expect zero, which is a little bit pessim- overly pessimistic. Yes, they're not going to get zero, but they're not going to get. They're they, probably not going to get what the statement says they're they're going to get. Probably, and that I assume is also maybe kind of true of at the state level. I don't know. As you say, there's no. What's going to happen with Social Security is that I think you know the retirement age is going to be bumped up. The um, the um, tax rate's going to – the so-called contribution level of payroll tax is going to be increased. Maybe the benefit's going to be indexed differently. That's different though because that's – those are all federal legislation that's – you know, Congress can change Social Security anytime it wants. But the, the things we're talking about, these are contractual obligations between a state government and the union that I think are of a different legal nature or yeah, am I wrong? That, that's really the problem. No, that's exactly right, Russ. That, that, that's, that's really the problem. Well, look, we have a history in this country of adjusting Social Security, uh, making technical adjustments, t- 
technical adjustments to Social Security benefits and contributions in order to put the system back into balance. We yeah. had that late seventies and, and, and early eighties, and and you know, Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system, but it's one where there's an understanding that now we need the political will to be able to do this. And again, you know, with with the the, the extent to which uh, you know Congress is is polarized and you know, you know the sort of political. Uh, uh, gridlock that we have in Washington, you know, maybe a tall order, but there is a history of, of revising Social Security benefits. The problem that we've seen in the states is governor after governor in, in the U.S. and the U.S. states have, have tried to put forth pension change, you know, proposals to change pensions, and they've been met pretty much with the, uh, the resistance of the groups that, you know, the, the public sector unions and the, and, and the, and the people who, who have been promised these pensions who have said, look, this is a contractual promise. You can't change these. <clears throat> and then what's happened is that the, gover- the, the governments, the legislatures, the governors have typically backed down and said, okay, well, we'll water this pension reform down so that it only affects newer employees. Right. And newer, new, new, brand new employees, not just newer, but brand new employees. So um, these are, you know, these 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 are promises that are viewed as having been part of the contract. And so, just like you know, Greece has no way of restructuring its sovereign debt. We we have no way of restructuring these promises. We have, and 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 the, the, I think the result is going to be that we're going to reach a point where there is a ser- you know, even more serious competition for scarce government resources to you know pay for schools and roads and teachers. Uh, and public safety officials versus uh, to uh, you know to to to, to pay the, the pensions of the people who who work who worked in the in the uh, in the in the past. It's just not easy to make technical adjustments uh, or you know or ch- to change benef- to change benefits uh, that are already being received by people or that are going to be received even by the current working group of, of public sector employees. But it does. I mean, maybe I I don't have enough knowledge of the legal system, legal issues involved, and maybe you don't either, but it would seem to me that if I'm negotiating with the firefighters and I've made uh, today about current salaries, current overtime, current pensions, and I've made past promises to firefighters that are, that are turned out to be quite much more expensive than I, than I thought or I didn't put enough aside for whatever reason as a state, it seems to me I could – it's imaginable that that past contract could be renegotiated on the basis of current ter- current terms could could play a role in that. Is that imaginable? Is that could that be? Well, it's it's, it's imaginable. Uh, I think the retirees. Uh, I mean, they have very uh, strong political power themselves. The question is, would there ever be a situation where? Uh, you know the um, uh, the kind of younger public sector workers would be able to uh, you know ne- ne- negotiate things yeah. and kind of uh, uh, in a sense sell out yep. uh, the, the the older the older retirees. I think I think the, the dynamic that makes that really difficult is that who really controls the bargaining that goes on? Uh, you know who, who, are, who are the people who are really at the table in public sector unions when doing the bargaining? They they are individuals who themselves are only a couple of years away from retirement. Right. And so they have to find. They would have to kind of very find. They don't want to. They don't want to. They don't want to lower their own packages. True. Uh, but you know, so they would have to, it'd be very hard for them to be able to find a way to sort of draw the draw the dark line uh, right where the you know right right where the the right the line between the the the, the workers and the retirees. You know, the people yeah. who are you know age sixty or something. Uh, so I I think that that dynamic, um, while you know while it's conceivable that that we could we could get there, is very difficult. You know, I'll certainly say that I mean if I were a younger public sector employee, I would think of these uh, the contributions that I was making to uh, to the to these pension systems as 
pretty much not going to get me anything. I mean, I, I, I think that, that, that there, you know, compared to Social Security, it'd be a bad assumption if, to, to think that your Social Security contributions are going to get you nothing. It would probably not be that bad an assumption to plan if you are a uh, younger teacher or public safety official uh, to plan uh, that the money that you're putting in, you're, you know, it's being deducted from your payroll to go to these uh, defined benefit systems is probably not going to get you very much, which, which actually leads me to, uh, I think, what, what's a pretty frightening point which is that there are uh, five or six million public sector uh, uh, employees, retirees, who are, who are outside of Social Security. They, they, do not, they are not in the Social Security system at all. They were not, their systems never opted in uh, when the Social Security Act was passed. And as a result, they are reliant only on this pension as a source of Retirement income. So, well, you know, on the one hand, they're going to, you know, the stories are going to come out. There are going to be people who retire very early. Uh, and uh, uh, in fact, I was, I was in, in Rhode Island and they were talking about some of their municipal systems where people were retiring in their 40s on, on sort of uh, recharacterizing pensions as disability. You're going to have people abusing the system. You're going to, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to hear about these, 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 these costly things. But on the other hand, there are going to be. Uh, many rank and file uh, individuals who are not trying to game the system, who are trying to have a secure retirement, who may not be, uh, may not have great employment prospects uh, after they leave the public sector at age 55, and they are completely dependent on the the the, uh, the state pension for their retirement. They have no social security. So, so uh, I, you know, I, I think um, uh, that 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 is something that should make. Younger uh, public sector employees, particularly the public safety officials, who are not, you know, many of whom are not in Social Security, uh, worried and should want to want to address this problem. Yeah, no, it's a nasty, uh, it's a nasty thing. Um, well, let's talk about what what might be done. What what could we do that would be better if we were thinking about this uh, from scratch? And then, what possible things might be done in the middle of, now that we're in the middle of it? So right. one obvious way to fix this going forward is is to have a more realistic assumption about about the growth rate or the discount rate. What we've been talking about, the eight percent mainly should be two or three or one and a half. Um, so that's one way to to make it clear. And the goal here isn't the goal here isn't to to get rid of public pensions. The goal here is to figure out a way to make it transparent so that the political process can make the decision. Rationally, in some demand, whatever that means, exactly. But at least there's some understanding of what's going on. And, and That's we, exactly right. Yes. So one way to do that is the is the um, the lower the discount rate to a more realistic number. The other would be to move away from defined uh, benefit and toward defined contribution. Correct. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, and I put it even a little bit more strongly, which is that you know, as long as state and local governments are going to reject the imperative of proper cost measurement, uh, we should we should be uh, you know they, they shouldn't be offering new defined benefit promises, and they should be moving to defined contribution if they want to accept the you know that are willing to accept the financial reality that a deferred a guaranteed deferred promise is you know co- you know you got to cost that out at, at at very very low low discount rates um you know has been recognized you know around the world and by corporate accounting and by just by everybody else uh then you know the the the, the db systems you know could 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 continue unfortunately i see nobody who wants to go near this discount rate uh most Everybody seems to anybody anyone who wants to proclaim they're doing pension reform, they just want to do something that sort of <clears throat> you know kind of nibbles around the edges. 
Now, so there have been some of that nibbling has has gone into some 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 farther reaching, far more biting measures, I suppose. Uh, which I think you know, as I mentioned before, a lot of the pensions have uh, cost of living adjustments associated with them, often called colas, and. Some of the most far-reaching reforms have been those that have actually um, tried to modify those COLAs, those cost of living adjustments, under the argument that, well, these aren't really part of the true contractual promise. The base benefit might have been, but this, this COLA is sort of a technical thing that we can potentially try to change. And New Jersey suspended the cost of living adjustments. Um, they'll be reinstated when, you know, if and when funding gets back to some certain level, we start the government's own measures. Rhode Island did something similar. Uh, suspending cost of living adjustments while also moving people a little bit more to some mixed defined benefits, defined contribution plans that I'll, I'll talk about in a second. Um, so th- those cost of living adjustments are actually really expensive and, and, and reductions in cost of living adjustments, which, which have received traction in a lot of states, um, do actually kind of you know, set you, kind of reset the liability to a uh, level that could, you know, that could be depending on the on the on the parameter. You could you could deal with, uh, you know, with thirty or forty percent of the unfunded liability problem by you know eliminating the colas. Um, now, the, eliminating the colas, of course, also uh, it, you know, in some places the cola is not just a three percent giveaway, but also is a a link to inflation of a not very generous initial base benefit. So some retirees would would you know. Feel that very strongly, yeah. but I think that the point is that you know at least when you when you see these reductions in in colas, they do reduce the uh, the, the kind of benefit, um, the unfunded liability uh, in the near term. But they don't they they don't put the future on, on much of a better footing because as long as you're still running these defined benefit systems, you are still running these imbalanced budgets, and you're gonna that that savings that you just earned, you just you just created from reducing the cost of living adjustment, are just gonna they're just gonna slowly be eaten away by the, the fact that the you know we're, we're still continuing to uh, you know to 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 mismeasure every new day of pension promises that we uh, that we make. Yeah, it just says well, that instead of being four, it's not instead of being say eight point eight, it's really only four point four trillion. So <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, right. I mean, you know, so it just, it just you know it just well, you know, and then and then that four that four point four will continue to grow. You know, if if the only thing we change is the cost of living adjustment. You know those numbers that I gave you before, by the way. I mean, those are only the legacy liabilities. That's that's the present value of what we've promised today. If even if we could, even if we thought it was advisable and could and did freeze all of the pension promises at today's levels and and compensated people using defined contribution plans going forward, even then that four point four trillion would still be there. So so uh, you know so so it's 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 uh, the the point is that unless we reform the system, we're in a, in a, in a situation where that four point four trillion is is growing, and and uh, so you know adjusting the cost of, the cost of living adjustment that gets you sort of a near term reduction in that kind of number, but it also it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that that number is just going to going to continue to grow. So it kind of it kind of buys buys time. Um, you know, so I think okay. So then, 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 in terms of all right, well, let's say we want to move out of the defined benefit realm. What about what about uh, defined contribution options? So what about the option of let's just give everybody four hundred one ks? Well, I, I think it's worth pointing out that part, part of part of the difficulty here is that four hundred one ks have suffered in the private sector from from poor investment choices and and high fees, uh, and have not exactly been a resounding success. For guaranteeing the retirement security of private sector Americans, I mean, there's not, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the 401k world. 
What's important to recognize, and what's been recognized in other countries and in some very small pockets of our economy, is that 401k plans are not the only kind of defined contribution pension plan that you can have. Um, so there, first of all, there are very simple improvements to 401ks that uh, could make them a lot better. So the federal, the federal uh, government employees, they're actually uh, ones that have been hired in the last 20 years or so. They are, they are on def- a defined contribution plan. That's kind of like a 401k plan. It's called the Federal Thrift Savings Plan. Because the federal government is big, they're able to negotiate very good, you know, very low fees with the providers of these, of these plans. And they're also uh, you know, savvy in setting up a plan that gives people you know, reasonable investment choices, um, not, you know, not, not large numbers of uh, unnecessary high expense mutual fund uh, choices and, th- and things like that, um, but is a, is a plan that you know, provides people with very good choices for them for them for them to elect and also gives them the option to, to make an annuity out of their out of their wealth at, at, at retirement um, so you know what one one thing one could imagine is just have a thrift savings program you know for uh, for state employees which would really just be an individual account system for for state employees where states would would you know you use their bargaining power to negotiate low fees with with mutual fund advisors so that's one option another option is to uh, uh, say okay, well, you know, we may, maybe we actually uh, don't necessarily want uh, to go all the way to the individual account. Maybe we maybe we're concerned about the choice the, the choices that behavioral economics suggest that people are making in four hundred one k's. And what you could do then, if, if if you believe that that's the right way to to uh, to look after public sector employees, is you could set up what's called a pooled defined contribution plan. And what that is, I guess, the best way to to, to describe that is. Uh, you know, take one of these big systems like CalPERS, the California Public Employee Retirement System. Instead of there being a baseline guarantee for that, you know, you will earn, you will earn a pension that is going to be a function of how many years you worked, what your salary is, etc. You instead basically just give employees shares, ownership stakes in CalPERS. Um, this is a you know, pooled, collective, defined contribution vehicle. And then what happens is when the employee retires. They will get a pension that is based on the value of their claim in the uh, in the pension fund, and this is not unlike what has been offered by uh, TIAA CREF for many years to uh, uh, to some uh, college professors. I've I've never been part of TIAA CREF myself, but um, uh, these pooled defined contribution vehicles allow individuals to have an ownership stake in the pension fund. Then they they're not making their own investment decisions if they don't want to. Uh, and they can then get a pension when they retire. That's a function of how these assets have performed, but without taxpayer guarantees. So there is a way to still have pooled investment without taxpayer guarantees. And I think that's you know, that's a reasonable option to to consider as well. I think we have to we have to put all these options on the table. And uh, if they won't accept the imperative of proper defined benefit cost accounting, then uh, some kind of defined contribution arrangement seems necessary. Well, necessary to you and me. <clears throat> the question is. If you went to a public employee right now and said, "Which do you prefer, this guarantee with this current structure or this other thing?" They'd this defined this pool defined contribution. They'd say, "I think I'm in. For, I think I'm in for the. I like what I have." So yeah, I think I, the, pro- I, the problem is, that, and that shows you that reflects to you that that the guarantee, the guaranteed benefit, is a more valuable benefit yeah. than a non guaranteed benefit, and yeah. that's why we can't keep using these return assumptions. These return assumptions because the return assumptions. Ignore the guarantee that that, that that fact that the public employee would say no. I prefer the return guarantee. Well, I mean that that indicates that the that the 
the, the pension is a, is a, you know, the, 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 the guaranteed deferred promise is indeed a, a costly thing. And if you try, just imagine, you know, trying to set that up for yourself. Imagine if you wanted to buy bonds or annuities to pay yourself uh, a, um, you know, uh, $80,000, $90,000 a year pension when you retire, uh, you would see that that would be a very expensive yep. thing for you to, for you to set up. Yeah. So what's, uh, where does that leave us? We're out of time. So tell me what, where you think this might head over the next few years. There've been a few governors that have, as you say, tried to challenge the system. They've become, uh, they've gained some national notoriety. Um, Scott Walker and Chris Christie, I don't know what they've really done. They've, they've certainly talked about stand quote, standing up to the public sector unions. I don't know what they really have, have actually done or said. There's a lot of symbolism here. And I know there's a lot of on both sides, right? There's there's a lot of people who are angry at them, maybe for reasons that are that they haven't done as much as it seems, and maybe there's people who've given them too much credit, but um, for 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 so-called standing up, whatever that means, uh, at least trying to do something about this issue. And it's, you're in, you're in California. What's going to happen there? No, I, I I'm not optimistic. I mean, I, I think that it, it seems that. Uh, um, in most situations, the best that can be done is to implement reforms that affect uh, that affect new employees. There have actually been progress. There has been progress in California made through the referendum system. You know, in California, a lot of measures are end up being voted on by yeah. by the public, and, and both San Diego and San Jose put in some uh, some measures at the uh, at the at the municipal level. Uh, but you know, in, in California, I see more. You know, we, we we've had an increasing number of municipal bankruptcies. Uh, Fortin, Stockton, uh, et cetera. And uh, in those bankruptcies, in many cases, you see, uh, you basically see a big dispute who's first in line, the, yep. the pensioners or, uh, or uh, the bondholders. Uh, in the meantime, you know, the, the public sector services are getting, are getting slashed in these places. And I think, you know, the, the ability of states to deal with this is, is, is going to vary state by state. I mean, Rhode Island did something recently where they pretty much just put bondholders first in line. And many states would not be able to do that because of their laws, uh, their, their state constitutional provisions. Um, some might be able to. So I think this is going to be uh, a large, uh, there's going to be a lot, of, of, uh, a lot of legal contention over what can and can be done. And I, I do see a future of uh, a lot more in the way of uh, municipal bankruptcies, uh, disputes about who is first in line, pensioners or bondholders. Meanwhile, you know, taxpayers and recipients of public services are are going to get squeezed. You know, we we recently had a paper in a, a post in the in the uh, op-ed in the Washington Post uh, explaining how you know if you wanted to put pensions on a uh, on a fully funded basis in thirty years, which is a goal that many governments say that they're uh, that they're that they're targeting, you would actually have to increase annual tax annual property taxes per household. Actually, but you have to be on every household, not even once, just ones that own property, uh, by um, by thirteen hundred and seventy five dollars per year, and growing with inflation. So those are the kind of resources we need in the U.S. Every year we have to, starting now, we have to take that that amount of money to, to set to this. And every year we don't do that, that number just gets greater and greater. So I see a future where where taxpayers and recipients of public services are going to get squeezed, while bondholders and uh, public sector uh, retirees argue over, uh, you know, who, who, uh, uh, who is entitled to the, to the scraps, um, that, that remain. Um, so I, uh, not, not, not very optimistic. I'd, I'd like to believe that we could really make progress through improving defined benefit transparency, through considering the introduction of risk sharing for public sector employees, 
for you know borrowing uh, uh, good plans from uh, other countries. Uh, but I, uh, I I don't really see the uh, uh, the political environment these days is creating very much other than a really unstable system that's going to lead to a fair number of crises uh, in the not too distant future. My guest today has been Joshua Rao. Josh, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.